All right, let's begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you that yet again you have brought us to uh, the saints and brought us into communion and fellowship here at Spring Meadows. And we just pray that as we look to your word, we become ever more enamored with the work that you have ordained, uh, the work of your Son, Christ our Lord, and the work of the Spirit that preserves us. And we praise you, our triune creator um, and redeemer. With all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, today we're going to power through the Gospel of Matthew, and um, especially early on, I think I'll move rather quickly because I have some stuff at the in the middle portions that I really want to spend some time in. And uh, we'll just kind of begin with a quick review of, at least from this Gospel, some of what we covered last week. Remember that the Gospel of Matthew begins with two words that essentially, if you wanted to translate them, could be the book of Genesis rather than a book of gene- the genealogy. Um, the book of genealogy, it says there, that word would also be the word for Genesis in, in Greek. So it's an allusion to Genesis, just like John's Gospel begins with. And um, notice that Matthew, uh, right at the beginning, uses uh, the name Christ, so he is making no mistake that he sees Jesus as the Messiah, the true King of Israel. And then after that genealogy, we have five prophetic fulfillments. So Matthew is making clear in those five fulfillments that immediately happen after that genealogy that he is the one that is prophesied. He is the one that all the prophets look forward to. Um, and... Uh, and yet that prophecy word in our modern context, we almost think of it as a one-for-one situation. But how the, the And we kind of have a checklist running in our mind. But all these prophetic fulfillments had had previous fulfillments. And so um, we also have to understand prophecy as like something else. It's like um, something else. So... For instance, let me give you an example of this biblically. Think of a story of a young privileged boy who gets captured, put in a prison by the great power of his day, but because of his gifts, he rises up, he's put into a position of power, really the second position of power for all the nation, uh, through in part his ability to interpret dreams. Now, who did I describe in Scripture? Joseph or Daniel would actually be appropriate in that description. It's both. They both have lives that have very similar experiences. Now, obviously, if we get more technical, um, there are some differences. But Scripture does this all the time. And so, in part, prophetic fulfillment is like unto something else. And so that's why a lot of people get troubled because they'll go into the Old Testament and say, hey, wait, when Jeremiah was talking about Rachel weeping for her children, that's when the Babylonian armies coming through. But what Matthew is saying is that this situation is like that. He wants you to be reminded of that. He's going to do that throughout his gospel. Um, so Matthew's point is that in the fullness of all five of these prophetic fulfillments, it really adds up to telling us that Jesus is the new Exodus. He's the new 
uh, mosaic figure of the day. And so um, that's a fulfillment. And then when we get to chapter 3, we jump 30 years in advance. So there's a gap. And we have the call to repent by John the Baptist. And then we have really uh, in chapter 3, the quite possibly the clearest statement of the Trinity in all of Scripture. Uh, The fact that we have uh, God the Father speaking out at the baptism of Christ. We have the Spirit descending like a dove, and we have Christ present. Is uh, We have God in three persons, and yet God is one. And, and in many ways, it's almost, uh, you know, if we think about these early four chapters and what, what will go on, they have so many mirrors with the first three chapters of Scripture. Um, in Genesis 1, we have God say, let us make man in our own image. If you look at the Hebrew on that, God is speaking in singularity, but also plurality. It's this weird little thing that, you know, is there uh, for, for a Jew, for instance. What is God talking about? But obviously, uh, Matthew is quick to reveal uh, the trinity of God in the New Testament. That, that veil is going to be torn through the New Testament and the work of Christ. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Then... Again, paralleling those first chapters of Genesis, where after Jesus is baptized, what happens to him? Immediately afterwards, in the wilderness, not in a paradise. He's tempted by Satan. Three temptations, and he has just been called God's son. And Satan mocks him by saying things like, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, he is, he's mocking and he's, he's trying to tempt Jesus just by the title that, that Jesus uh, receives. Obviously, uh, Jesus successfully um, resists that temptation when he's offered all the kingdoms of this world. Not that Christ won't eventually um, have all kingdoms of this world under his hand. Um, but he resists that because that is not he would receive them in a way that had not been ordained. Uh, through the plan of redemption. And immediately afterwards, Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven. And that becomes, in Matthew, um, and, I, and I misspoke a little bit last week, but that becomes the theme of how Matthew describes Jesus' preaching. That Jesus wants to continually mention the kingdom of heaven. And so he goes, and he was born in Bethlehem, and Matthew tells us, And you're going to see Bethlehem, while we don't think of it, is actually in that day and age considered on a mountain. Matthew will have all sorts of different moments. So Bethlehem, and he wants to let you know that it's upward. And he's going to do this throughout his gospel. That's why I pointed out. Then he calls his disciples by the sea. Then we're about to hit the Sermon at the Mount. And he is going to be up on a mountain again. Um, so that is, uh, yeah, one second here. Um, but actually, even before we get there, there is a quote of Isaiah that happens in 4, 12 through 16 that uh, is talking about how uh, Jesus withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. A territory of Zebulun. Uh, 
uh, and Nephtali, and that was that what might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And that statement there is Galilee is what of the of the Gentiles. It's of the uh, if you look at verse fifteen, and so. It's unique that Jesus is going to Galilee because Galilee was considered the place of the Gentiles. Here, this messianic figure, after the baptism, after the temptation, after calling the first disciples, he's going to go to a land that wasn't all Gentile, but largely seen as a Gentile land. If you were going to be a true prophet, you think you would begin in Jerusalem. And so um, Matthew's going to also play with this thread throughout uh the gospel highlight the fact that um, Jesus constantly is uh, doing things that a Jew of that day would not have expected. Um, and so, oh yeah, so he calls his disciples, and then Jesus ministers to the great crowds. Close chapter four, and then we have the Sermon on the Mount. I gave you a little handout there on the Sermon of the Mount, and. Um, and we then begin what is, if you look at your outline, a new section. And we know that's a new section because Matthew makes it clear it's a new section. Let me read for you uh, Matthew four twenty three, And this is what it says. And he went out through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now let me read to 9.35 of Matthew. So almost sound exactly the same. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Matthew will use these little markers throughout his gospel. Uh, we have to remember that we're spoiled to have a copy of Scripture. There would be these markers that you could hear on the ear and go, oh yeah, I remember that. And So that would become a literary unit that you would remember all the things within it. Um, uh, so Matthew will, um, in this outline, um, that he, he will kind of outline his own Bible. He gives these little moments. But looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is by far the most talked about scripture passage in all of church history, if we, especially the early church. Um, and looking at verse chapter 5, verse 1. What What is the posture of Jesus? What does he do? He climbs the mountain. And then at the mountain, he sits down. He sits down, which is the posture of, in one sense, a philosopher. It's a, um, it's a uh, philosopher's position. It's a teaching position. When you're seated, you are preparing to teach in the ancient world. And, um, and really... Matthew is trying to get a contrast. Not only do we have, when Moses went up the mountain, he went to what? Receive the word from God. Jesus will go up the mountain and share God's word. He doesn't need to, he's, he is the word incarnate. So Moses went up to the mountain in order to receive the word. And Matthew is very much showing Christ as a new and better Moses, Jesus goes up the mountain in order to give God's word. He doesn't, uh, um, he is the Lord, God incarnate. 
And Jesus is going to draw out throughout this sermon two ways of living. One way is wise and has wisdom. The other is marked with painful failure. And part of this um, requires us to understand and better understand uh, the word law. When we have the word uh, Torah in Scripture. Now, often when we think of the law of God, we think of what? Yeah, the Mosaic, uh, the Mosaic Commandments. Uh, usually the ten are, are the most highlighted, but we think of the Mosaic uh, Commands. Oh, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands. The Torah, though, to a Jew would just really more be the five books. Um, and Jesus is going to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And beatitude means good word. Um, it's, it's really a saying of wisdom. In Ashrei and in the Hebrew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is wisdom literature. Uh, actually, the book of James, which Martin Luther infamously struggles with, uh, read the book of James as a restatement of the Sermon on the Mount. Read the book of James as wisdom literature. Uh, don't, don't read it as law. Read it as wisdom to a good and full life. Um, and um, it begins with the Beatitudes. And just look at some of the things here that it says are blessed. Being poor is blessed. Um, being a mourner is blessed. Being meek is blessed. Being hungry is blessed. Being thirsty is blessed. Obviously, this is tied up into other illustrations. But the first thing that's on the ear is something that doesn't seem like it provides blessing for the person. It seems even being peacemakers is a dying to self. And so um, it is very kind of different. But in the wholeness of what it means to live a good life, in the larger idea of Torah and how we are to live, um, there's a wisdom there. And, and Jesus is going to further unpack how he's not, he's not trying to call us to live under strict, in a strict legal mindset. We're going to see that actually immediately after the Sermon on the Mount uh, when he's going to have a debate with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. But he's calling us to a life of wisdom in how we live and a fullness of life um, in that wisdom. Um, the, the key statement, the key section of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, um, really the, uh, the moment in 5, verse 17 through 20. It's the hermeneutical key for the whole sermon. Um, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes just the least of, of, of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew is, is saying, don't do away with the Old Testament. The old and new are going to hang together. Um, and while Jesus is teaching 
certainly would have astonished the Jews of that day and and the the, believe, the Jews of that day. It's he's not trying to entirely um, do a dividing line. He just wants to, with that word beatitude, that ashray of life, have you look at the law with wisdom. Um, the theology of the Sermon of the Mount. Some people have argued that it should be its own book and it's an entirely own thing, but. As we're going to see, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the theology of it, is seen repeated all throughout Matthew. He takes what the teaching is and he repeats them and weaves them in. Um, Sermon on the Mount is largely a poetic text of, as well. Um, and that's important too because uh, strict, the strictest reading of the law is not uh, usually poetic. It's a code. It's um, Think of the, even the book of Deuteronomy and such. That was a constitution document of sort. So it, it, there's, there's poetry in it, and um, it enhances. It's meant to be an enhancement of our understanding of how to live in light of God's law. Um, so, yeah. It sometimes uh, embraces also hyperbole. And with exception of the divorce regulations, the Sermon, of the offer, uh, Sermon on the Mount doesn't really offer a set of rules, but in steaks and still, instead to install a moral vision. Its precepts are proverbs, is really how to understand it. Um, not to be uh, proverbs, it has great wisdom for us, but um, sometimes uh, if we take it over literally, uh, we can have problems in it. Um, one uh, way to understand the Sermon on the Mount that's been described by theologians is the Sermon on the Mount is like a ladder which may be climbed over time. We will never achieve the moral perfection in it, though we can increase uh, our life and the way we live by living by its teachings. What we need, therefore, is to be inspired by the Sermon on the Mount and despite our imperfect nature. The Sermon on the Mount cannot be divorced from its per- the person of its speaker. Its ethics cannot be separated from its Christology. The Sermon on the Mount is not an anonymous proverb. We know that the, the true fullness of the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, uh, we have been angry. Obviously, um, we have lusted to some degree after something. And the Sermon on the Mount then calls us murderers, calls us adulterers for these sorts of things. Um, so if we look at it again in that strict legal mosaic way without regard to who Christ is and what he has accomplished and to out regard of it as wisdom literature, which is to be aspired to, it could be very upsetting, very troubling, but, um, yeah. Um, uh, and then how does Matthew close out this narrative section for the sermon on the Mount? Oh, wait, actually. Hold on, I've missed a page. Um, let me see. Human flourishing on Jesus' terms. So yeah, human flourishing on Jesus' terms aren't going to make any sense to the things of the world, things like poverty. Um, and because Jesus uses these contrasts, who, who are the who's the big contrast in the Book of Proverbs? The two ladies. Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will use two types of people and it's almost like a new Lady Folly, Lady Wisdom. 
Um, and, and which one will you decide? Which way will you decide to uh, live in? Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, we, he very much, at the conclusion on the Sermon on the Mount, inserts himself as whether you want to live by his words. Uh, then moving to chapter 8 of Scripture, um, we have, after this, uh, they, they talk about Jesus' authority, um, and really that, again, is an illustration of the fact that when Jesus goes up the mountain, he speaks as the Word of God, rather than waits for a Word of God from, from Moses. They're, they're marveling at how he is speaking. He is speaking as if he is God, um, because he is God. Um, Jesus then clean, uh, cleanses the leper. And what there's going to be a threefold repetition that Matthew will constantly do throughout his gospel. He will, um, first, he's making clear God's restoring his reign. God's restoring his reign. Um, and so this idea is uh, for the world. He restored it from the mountain of Bethlehem. And then the second mountain on the narrative, the Sermon on the Mount, he restores it. Um, there are other mountains along the way, like Mount Olives that Matthew's going to bring up. But then the, hill, the mountain of Calvary, Mount Calvary, will ultimately also be a mountain um, which Christ hangs upon the cross in order to rest- restore God's reign. But uh, the second theme Matthew talks about, he's going to talk about as we shift into chapter 8 and uh, chapter 9 here. And God is intent on healing and restoring people. On healing. God's, God's new reign is going to bring healing for us. And so this is really the first point. And these themes just kind of repeat through every narrative section. Um, God's restoring his reign. He's intent on healing us. And then the final component of his threefold kind of repetition he does throughout the book is making disciples. Uh, And so he wants you to know that the king is here. Again, think even of that genealogy, that repetition of 14 I talked about last week that is... uh, the same number that David's name adds up to, royalty, royalty. The king is here. He's intent on healing us, on repairing our wounds. And he's also intent on making disciples. Obviously, the book will end on the Great Commission. And uh, he, he does this in this narrative section. Um, when it comes to this section of two chapters, there are a lot of people who wouldn't fit the bill as someone to be healed. Um, the one who uh, I'm going to focus in on is the faith of Centurion. Uh, Centurion in chapter eight, verse ten. Look at. Uh, let me read what it said. When Jesus heard this, so this man had come to Jesus in order to for his servant to be healed, and he he proclaims how he knows Christ can heal him, and Jesus says this to the centurion. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. So Jesus is showing, and this is going to really be highlighted in the next couple of verses, uh, if the Gentiles 
are largely embracing him, and more so than uh, many of the Jews. Um, yeah, he, to just continue, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, into a place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so really uh, stern language for uh, many of the Jews who end up rejecting Christ. Uh, to be a child, child of Abraham, we are learning, is not, in, in Matthew's text, is not to be a, of a particular race of people. To be a child of Abraham is your relationship with Christ. What is that relationship with Christ? It is looking at the inward heart that matters. It's not your externals of who you are, uh, what ethnicity you are. Uh, it is um, found in Christ. So the outsiders of outsiders, a soldier for the enemy is shown to be somebody in 810 as with great faith. No one else in Israel has this. And then in this section, um, this narrative section, after we've had all these Gentiles embrace, uh, we go to uh, chapter 9, I believe, verse 32. Let me see. Yeah. And this becomes a, a, real, a real contrast with the centurion. Let me begin reading in 9.32. And they were going away. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so, in this section, how does uh, Matthew close out this, this verse in this section? Uh, um, he is, uh, the, the Pharisees are showing their hardening. Uh, then, in the, and to close out chapter 9, there's this final theme of making disciples. The harvest is plentiful and the labors are few section. And so... Um, we see the beginning of the hardening of the Pharisees. It's going to uh, peak in chapter 12, but uh, um, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so the next section is uh, 10 through uh, 12, chapter 12. And while Matthew wraps up his last section by making, well, talking about the need for labor disciples, the next section is ultimately all then about um, what he seeks from uh, the disciples to do that he's going out to uh, he's going to send out and so he sends out his disciples and and really again Jesus puts this idea of two types of people if they receive you what does he tell his disciples to do oh well they don't receive you yeah if they don't receive you if they reject you let's make that one of rejection shake the dust off your feet shake uh, if they do receive you, then, you know, allow yourself to be blessed by them. Um, Matthew, again, he's playing on these on these threads, and the people who often are the ones shown to be rejection, of course, are the Pharisees, the scribes. Um, and then also in this section, um, Matthew, in this discipleship heavy, heavy section, he's going to begin to uh, also illustrate John, 
and the persecution of John the Baptist and John's struggle. Um, uh, John does not die yet in this text, but uh, this is when John in prison has doubt. He sends messengers to Christ or asking if he's actually the Messiah. And so all of this helps, uh, helps basically illustrate that. Um, and then Christ, when he's talking about being a disciple, the call to his disciple, he says the following in this section. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me uh, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Augustine, when he was talking about these, this section of scripture and that passage, he likened the yoke of Christ to feathers to a bird. That, yes, there is weight to a feathers for, for feathers with a bird, but with the yoke of those feathers, the bird may fly. Um, and so that is, uh, I think, uh, Augustine, really, it's hard to improve upon that illustration of Christ's yoke. There, there is a cost to the discipleship that this section is talking about. But um, we are blessed in that and made to fly um, uh, through the gracious, uh, through the way that Christ has called us to live, this, this new way, this, this way that is um, full of wisdom, full of uh, goodness. Um, and then the turning point of the Gospel of Matthew happens in chapter 12. Uh, Jesus has just talked about rest. He's just given us that beautiful summary of um, the rest for the weary and the laden. And then the big turning point becomes a discourse on the Sabbath rest and what that should look like. Um, and so there's Matthew's using a little bit of irony. Uh, in this point. Now the Jews really saw, even in, in this day, as their real big distinctive for the Gentiles is the fact that they had a Sabbath. That was their defining kind of identity. We are not like the pagans. We take the Sabbath off and we uh, completely rest, especially the Pharisees. There's, there's stories of Pharisees decided they couldn't walk more than a half a mile, and so if they had to walk a half mile, one Pharisee might carry another so that they could both make the trip. Uh, and that, that is how absurd some of the law, but they saw this strict Sabbath adherence as a national part of their identity. And so Jesus, in this debate in the Sabbath, he brings up two biblical points. He brings up David in the book of Samuel, uh, in First Samuel chapter 21, verse 6 about how David ate the showbread when him and his companions were starving. And this would have been a violation. And yet God is okay for him to do that. Um, also, he points out that there was a reality with the Levitical law where there was yearly calendar, but there's also a weekly requirement. Sometimes there's an eight-day requirement. 
Um, so it's like, for instance, Christmas on the same day every year. No, it's not on the same day every year. It rotates. And so the Levitical law said, basically, when this is in conflict with the weekly requirement, do this. And, and so Jesus points out that even the Levitical priests, they acted in wisdom in order to do the things that were more important. So to look at the law, um, it was okay for, for David to get food while he was starving uh, and eat the showbread because there's more wisdom in that. There's more wisdom in the idea of, of finding that. And so, again, it's sort of, it's not that Jesus, again, is abolishing the law, but he's saying when you look at the law so rigidly, you're missing the point. You're missing the forest through the trees. Um, and the Pharisees hate this argument. Um, they hate the biblical argument. They hate the person telling the argument. Um, and it's really a, uh, uh, and so at the height of this, um, and the height of Jesus just explaining that the Old Testament system, uh, had wisdom in it. He has continuity with it, but also even something greater than David is here. Uh, uh, this is what happens in chapter 12, verse 14. And this becomes the turning point of the book. Um, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees at that point, and Matthew will make clear every time the Pharisees come up from then on, that they are trying to trick him. They are trying to to essentially uh, catch him in his words and find a way that they can kill him as a heretic. They can, they can essentially, uh, um, uh, reg- they have totally hardened at that point. And that uh, becomes a turning point in the book that uh, really begins to illustrate, again, the two kinds of people, the division that Christ ultimately um, has, uh, even in family or even in uh, the nation that should have embraced him. Um, so yeah, there is. Uh, hold on. Oh, and then uh, what happens here? In uh, shortly then after, is we have a demon oppressed man who was blind. Oh wait, yeah, demon. Oh sorry, the demon oppressed man. My bad. I I said the uh, wrong verse, and I. Okay. Yeah, and so after the moment with the demon-oppressed uh, man, um, notice what the uh, Pharisees then do. They, they actually attribute Jesus' works to who? To Satan. And Jesus just sort of, uh, you know, you don't know the way in which he said it, but points out the foolishness of this, that why would Satan cast out his own demons? A house divided on itself cannot stand. But they are attributing the works of Christ to the devil. And uh, I, I mention this because this is also the same section of Scripture where we find the unforgivable sin. And what is the unforgivable sin? It's to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But really in the context of that passage, what that is, is to see the work of Christ as satanic. To see the work of Christ 
as something that's evil. To see Christ as evil. Um, uh, a lot of people, and uh, you know, even when I was a young believer, worried about you know this type of sin. Did I commit the sin that cannot be forgiven? But the real sin of can't be forgiven within the context of, of the passage itself is, how do you feel about the work of, works of Christ? Do you feel, eh, you know, I don't care about the works of Christ. Or are you in love with the work of Christ? Do you attribute the work of Christ, oh, Christ was wrong on this issue and that issue, and he was just kind of evil on this issue, and that is just mean that Jesus said. Or do you look at the words of Christ and go, wow. And there I see great wisdom on how to live a full life and how to live, and I'm so thankful for my Lord and Savior. So the unforgivable sin isn't, you know, one day I was really angry with God, for instance. If that's the case, then David's not saved because there's a lot of Psalms that David's not very happy with God. Or the Korites are not saved because Psalm 88 is is a pretty dark Psalm. Um that's not, or Elijah's not saved because Elijah's very angry with God at one point in his life. It's not the point of the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is to look at the works of Christ and to say essentially they should be rejected. Saying what's what's over there? Which... Angry. Oh, angry! Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I just wanted to be in on your discussion. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, and the hardening has already kind of occurred in verses earlier. And then, yeah, they start absolutely. And so they've already resolved to find a way to basically kill Jesus. Next, very shortly thereafter, they're calling Jesus Satan. And so the hardening has already been made full. Uh, and so it's it's not something that a, a true believer can accidentally do on a bad day. Uh, it's something that is actually in the context of the scripture here uh, that is a building up of hate and animosity towards towards the work of God. God's totally controlled our heart, changed our heart, gave us a new heart. Yeah, he gives the believer a new heart, correct. Correct. And then even the hardening of hearts, uh, if we read Romans 1, that hardening that occurs is a judgment also of God. It's a judgment to harden the hearts of people. Um, people, you know, if you watch like the 700 Club and don't watch the 700 Club, you know, they'll act like God needs to judge the nation because this, this, and this is going on. When actually, I would argue in Romans 1, God has judged the nation and that's why this, this, and this are going on. Um, um, in one sense. Um, okay. So then we move into a, uh, uh, to close out chapter 12, Jesus redefines a true family of God. We have the, the scene where, uh, you know, Roman Catholics need to kind of blot this out of their Bible because they believe Mary never sinned. But Mary and Jesus' brothers are trying to stop Jesus' ministry. Um, and, uh, Jesus then says, he kind of chains, changes the true family of God. Again, these true divisions. Who, who's of God and who's not of God? Who's my real brother, mother, or sister? Who is not? And actually, from this passage, uh, while we often talk about Jesus' brothers, it seems like Jesus at least had two sisters as well. Um, 
So uh, just a just a little aside. What? Yeah, Catholics won't like that idea either. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, all right. Then when shifting to chapter uh, thirteen, we get the third discourse. Um, now, last we checked where Jesus was, he was on the Sermon on the Mount. Now he is by the sea, and he's down again. Matthew always wants you to know what, what elevation Jesus is at. And he's teaching by the sea, and there's seven parables, and all the parables are about separation. Uh, the, and the parables, think of in the context of what's happened just before in the text with the Pharisees. Why do you think Jesus in part shifts to fair parables? Because those who, uh, through the Spirit, understand the wisdom of God can hear it. And those who are currently conspiring to kill him and to destroy him, uh, they are none the wiser, actually. Matthew will tell you on rare occasion, uh, the Pharisees sort of got that parable. <laughs> they, he'll, he'll mention it when they actually do understandable and understand it a little bit. So Jesus uh, speaks parabolically. Then we have... Right before Jesus is feeding on the 5,000, John the Baptist dies. And he dies in regards, how does John die? What's going on? Yeah, but what were the events? There's a great feast going on, right? The Edomite king has a great feast that results in the death of the Lord's anointed. Then we're going to go up a mountain and we're going to have another feast with the true king of peace. And he's going to feed... 5,000 and what they do, it's going to leave all of them full. Um, uh, I think Matthew is contrasting the, the death of John in that diabolic feast of the Edomite king, the Edomite line of Herod um, with the feast of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and how many baskets were left after the feast? We're in chapter 14. It's, this begins to get cool. Uh, chapter 14, verse 20. There's 12 left. Okay. Yeah, so this is... Uh, so, Jesus' setting is not a palace like the Herod feast was. It's in the wilderness. He began with five loaves, two fish. Yet all 5,000 were satisfied. And in this satisfaction, there are 12 baskets remaining. Immediately after that feeding, what happens in 1422? What does Jesus do? He walks on water. So if I were to walk up to a Jewish child, even today, who has never heard of Jesus' name, and I were to ask the following, when did God feed thousands in the wilderness and have a miraculous water crossing? What would that Jewish child say to me? Yeah, the Exodus. And uh, if I said, oh, by the way, child, how many tribes were part of that Exodus? There were 12. They would say 12. How many baskets were left in the wilderness? There were 12 baskets in the wilderness. The images Matthew evokes uh, would have been clear to the Jews. Uh, Matthew doesn't stumble upon this imagery accidentally. Um, this is a new exodus that is occurring. Uh, he is the new and greater Moses. Uh, so... Then in 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, after this hardening turning point, we already talked about it, are at it once again. After Jesus crossed the water and fed the five, 
thousand. And so they have returned to find Jesus and to be in opposition to him. And Jesus does not humor them in his responses uh, from then on because he knows they're up to evil. And when they see Jesus is doing miracles and amazing things, they want to get into how someone uh, cl- how someone's hands are before they eat. Uh, Jesus makes clear in this fight over how you should eat, uh, you know, the, the great battle uh, any mother maybe has fought with their children, go wash your hands before you eat. Uh, Jesus makes clear you're missing the point. It's not on the outside, what you look like, that defiles you. It's what's inside that defiles you. And then Jesus is found in healing a Canaanite woman. By the way, uh, in the water scene, Peter was called of little faith when he what in the water? When he sank, when he stopped looking to Christ. The Canaanite woman is going to be of great faith. Anybody know the irony of calling a woman a Canaanite? Is there a Canaanite in this day? There's no Canaanite. Canaanite's looking backwards. Canaanite's looking to the Torah. Uh, there's no Canaanite. It would sort of be like talking about us as the queen's subjects. You know, we're subjects of the royal crown. Um, we're, not, we're not subjects to the queen. We, that, that's long since passed. You know, that was hundreds of years ago that our ancestors might have been subject to the queen's crown if, or what have you. We're subject to other kings or wherever our nationalities lie. But for America itself, that's in the past. And Matthew is purposely doing that. He's purposely drawing that imagery because uh, the Canaanites, the Gentiles, the pagans, they're, they're being welcomed in to the kingdom as well. And so uh, this woman, though, is called a woman of great faith uh, in contrast to Peter's moment where he's sinking and he's called of little faith. Um, then what happens in 1532? We have another feeding story. So it's like, Matthew, get on with it. Okay, we get it. Jesus can make food appear. But that's actually, there's, it's really neat. This time it was the 4,000. And all who ate were satisfied. And they have seven loaves. And, and many small fish. So seven baskets remaining. Um, after seven baskets remain, what do the disciples then do? They get into a boat. And they make another water crossing. Um, so we have this Canaanite woman who would have hearkened back to books like Genesis, the Torah, but Genesis, we have a boat crossing of the water, uh, Pennington this is where I'm going to diverge from Pennington a little bit. He argues it's a, step, a second Exodus. Um, I think the boat imagery and the seven the seven is seen as the world, as days of creation. It's all the world. This is a second uh, deliverance. And the deliverance first was for the 12 tribes. And then the second feeding to the seven ba- with the seven baskets is a feeding for the world. They might be passing, though, on an ark. That's where I would slightly differ. He sees it as a second Exodus account of the passing over the water. But actually... For instance, and this is one of the reasons I'm a Presbyterian, the, uh, the two times baptism is related to the Old Testament in uh, the New Testament. Paul and Peter each have one. One is linked to the passing through of the ark. 
and one is linked to the passing through the waters into the wilderness at the Exodus. And so this seven is a, um, is a world sermon on the Mount. I would suspect actually this, the preaching was very similar to the sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, just is, uh, Matthew's just not going to get into it, but the imagery, why seven baskets over twelve is this is a world thing. This is with Canaanites. This is with Gentiles. This is with people who are not a part of the covenant community. He is the, he's greater than Moses because he's having a double exodus, a double deliverance. Um, and we, and if you think I'm crazy on this, just look at verse 1531. So that the crowd wondered after, after this. Actually, I'll, I'll read starting at 30. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. These people are not Jews that are in this section primarily. They are glorifying the God of Israel. They are Gentiles at this moment. And so it's not that Matthew just wants to tell us several times that Jesus feeds a, a lot of people and can make bread at any time. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, what time am I at? Ah, oh, it's terrible. I'm going to, I'm going to quickly talk about one last thing. Um, the irony is, after these two feedings, you'd think the disciples were pretty impressed. Immediately, the narrative shifts to the disciples worrying about not bringing the bread. And so, it becomes this kind of ironic moment uh, that is going to lead us to the transfiguration um, and lead us also into Peter's confessional statement. But after they've seen Jesus uh, not only feed 5,000 and 4,000, and Scripture makes clear they were counting basically men, there, so that would also include families. Um, that, uh, yeah, they're, that they still are worried about having bread at night, um, which is just this great irony. And so, uh, God is going to reveal even more of Himself to them. So, with that, let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for what you've revealed to us in your book of Matthew this morning. Um, and we just ask for more of you uh, as we go on into worship and uh, get the joy of worshiping you uh, through the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.